All right, everybody. Well, welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. This is episode 143 already, and uh, we're going to be talking with Andrew Brokus, who I know a lot of you know. He's been on the show before and said, when are we going to get Andrew back on? Uh, well, today's the day. And so we're going to chat with Andrew a bit, especially about playing against limpers, which is uh, the poll that we put out there. One of those things that came back is the most highly rated things for recreational players to try to figure out. So we're going to get some insight uh, from Andrew about playing against limpers. Uh, before that, just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, just, you know, at the end of the podcast, we'll do a little bit more in detail if you want more of this information. But just uh, on the front end of this thing, uh, first of all, we need to thank Running Aces. They're our official sponsor. Uh, they're fantastic. Uh, players of the week at Running Aces this week, uh, they didn't put out the final listing, but I know uh, that Nate Franklin and uh, Brian Morey were crushing it. So I know they're among the top two there. Uh, also, just so you know, we're going to start releasing the podcast on Monday. So we typically record on Monday, release on Friday. But as we start introducing more content, uh, we've got a lot of free things coming out. Uh, we want to be more timely. So you should be uh, getting these now on Monday nights uh, going forward. So a little bit sooner uh, without as much delay. And just a couple of things, uh, free things that are open to everybody. Make sure that you check this out. Uh, we posted it everywhere, but uh, let us know if you can't find it. Uh, we've got a Discord channel. Uh, which allows you to kind of do a virtual rail and exchange hand histories, all this stuff. Check that out. Uh, John Somsky has started a, or will be starting on September 4th, a free Poker Stars home game. Uh, so we're going to be doing that the first Wednesday night uh, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Everybody's welcome to play. That's going to be a good time. And then uh, Jake Mason has started an NFL Survivor Pool. So that's actually live. You can go out there, sign up now. Yahoo Sports, go to our stuff. we got the links everywhere. But that's open for everybody as we try to build community and just kind of have some fun with this. Uh, we'll give away some Rec Poker merch and some other things uh, to the winners of that deal. Uh, as you know, uh, we're launching a membership site October 1st. If you haven't heard about it, go back to last week's episode. We talked a long time about uh, what's coming down the pike there. We're all just super excited about that deal. And, uh, and I think that's it. Just stay plugged in. Uh, if you want to know what's going on, we got the email list. we got Facebook. we got Twitter. All of that stuff. And tonight is the first night that we're opening up our interview uh, to people that are not part of the panel. So uh, we just put the word out there. If you want to be part of this thing, you can listen to the interview. You can submit questions by text. Uh, if you want to be part of that deal and, and talk with people like Andrew Brokus, uh, feel free to check that out and let us know if you can't find or can't figure out how to get on there. But uh, we're excited about uh, making that option available to people as well. Uh, so I guess that's it. Uh, with that, uh, I want to introduce again uh, Andrew Brokus, who was with us, I believe, episode 130, about three months ago or so. And he's a player, he's a coach, he's an author, he's a blogger, he's a podcast host. Uh, Thinking Poker is how most of you guys know Andrew. 850,000 of reported payouts on Hendon Mob, six World Series of Poker main event caches, uh, including this year. Uh, he's the host of the Thinking Poker podcast, thinkingpoker.net. He's out there on Twitter, an instructor at Red Chip Poker and Tournament Poker Edge, a regular contributing writer, blah, blah, blah. Andrew, I could go on for a long time. Let's just stop there and well, say, don't hey. Don't let me stop you. Feel free to, to keep going. Keep going. All right. Talk slower. <laughs> say more. Let's go, let's go through the hand and mob results one by one, shall we? Uh, but, <laughs> but seriously, Andrew, thank you for your time and welcome to the show again. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad I was uh, popular enough to warrant uh, a, a second invite. Yeah, now one of the caveats, so people said, you know, we have Andrew on again, but make sure that his face is on video. And now you're not doing it. So maybe we should shut this thing off right now. I, wh whoever requested that made a big mistake. <laughs> they might have had you confused for somebody else. I don't know. I'm not I'm sure. I approach this the same way I approach coaching. Sometimes I know better than you do. <laughs> Very good. I would say that's fair most of the time. 
Well, well, we, you know, all kinds of things that we could talk about. Last time you broke down some hands for us, but uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that I know you're interested in this topic of of playing against limpers. There's a little bit of Twitter stuff going back and forth today, and so you know, before we kind of just start grilling it with some questions, and as you see, we've got we've got a panel. Uh, you can see Rob Washam, you can see Jake Mason. We also have John Somsky on the line. Uh, we've got at least a couple of people on the the other attendees. Uh, so people might be firing questions at you. But before we do that, just kind of open it up. Where do we start when we start talking about recreational players playing these lower buy-in tournaments and people are limping a lot, especially early in tournaments? What do we do? I, I really encourage people to think about uh, what kind of hand they have. So I know like one person on Twitter was saying just like uh, raise, 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 you know, or, or I mean, I'm right. But um, and I think th that's not wrong. Um, but he started it by saying simple. And I don't think it's simple either. I think that uh, there are certain hands that do well as raises, and there are certain hands that do better limping behind. And I think figuring out what kind of hand you have is step one. Um, I guess you guys are probably familiar with the concept of stack to pot ratio, but it might be worth uh, explaining just quickly for everyone else. It's sort of a measure of how deep you're going to be after the flop. Right, so pre-flop, we tend to talk about either big blinds or if you're in the Harrington school, maybe talk about M. But those are both ways of thinking about how deep you are pre-flop. And we know that that uh, determines how good of a hand you need to get all in pre-flop. Like when you have 50 big blinds, you need a much stronger hand to get all in pre-flop than when you have 15 big blinds. So stack to pot ratio is like the way of measuring that after the flop of saying if your stack is, or the effective stack, not necessarily yours, could be your opponent's stack. If the effective stack is only two times the size of the pot, you don't need a particularly strong hand. You know, any top pair, sometimes even middle pair or a draw is good enough to get all in. If we're talking about 10 or 20 times the size of the pot, you need a much stronger hand. Often an overpair is not good enough to get all in. You get deep enough, you know, bottom set isn't good enough to get all in. The low end of a straight isn't good. You know, it's, it's all just a function of how deep you are. So what you want to think about when you're deciding whether or not to raise a bunch of limpers, you know, if you do make a big raise against a bunch of limpers and one or more of them calls you, you're very likely to end up in a low stack to pot ratio situation. Uh, you're likely to end up the, in, in the kind of, you know, the SPR would be maybe three, four, or five. Uh, so you want to try to think ahead of time about what is the stack to pot ratio going to look like if somebody calls my raise. If nobody calls your raise, your hand doesn't really matter. Right? So when you're thinking about whether or not to raise your exact hand, you want to think about how well is it going to play if somebody calls me. Uh, so if you have, say, king-jack offsuit, that's the kind of hand that plays well with a low stack-to-pot ratio. It can very easily make the kind of hand that you can put in three times the pot with. Right? You get a jack-high flop, you get a king-high flop, you can pretty comfortably go with your hand if you have a low stack-to-pot ratio. If you have five-six suited, that's a hand that really prefers to have a high stack-to-pot ratio. It wants to have a lot of money behind when it sees the flop. And that's partly because it can make a lot of money if it happens to make a straight or a flush. And so you'd rather have more money. Be like, you know you're not a favorite pre-flop when you're putting the money in the 6-5 suited. So you can kind of wait and see if you get a favorable flop. Or even if you just flop a draw and you decide you're going to play the draw aggressively and try to get someone to fold, there's a lot more room to make people fold when there's more money behind. So I think you want to consider, do I have a hand that wants to play after the flop with a high stack to pot ratio? That would be a small pair, suited connector, stuff like that. I think those sorts of hands tend to be better for limping behind rather than raising. Like, I don't think you want to raise pocket twos versus a field of limpers because most of the time you're going to end up with a bad hand after the flop that's not good enough to play a big pot. And the times that you do flop a set, you're happy to have more money behind. Making the pot larger pre-flop isn't really necessary. Um, 
with a hand that wants to have a low stack to pot ratio after the flop, those are the ones that I think it makes sense to raise. So is that, is that, I mean, basically just fall in the category of, you know, speculative hands versus sort of high rank, high big, you know, big pairs, that sort of thing. Is that sort of how you divide prefer, it or is it more refined than thinking this is a speculative hand, I'm more likely to limp behind? Um, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with the term speculative because okay. I think it encourages people just to think in terms of making hands. And I think a lot of the value of playing a hand like 8-7 suited is not in making a straight or a flush, but in making even just a straight or flush draw right. and play aggressively. So it's not just about trying to make a, a big hand and get paid off. I think that's a mentality that uh, is, is sort of a dangerous one to, to fall into. I mean, I think what you mean by speculative hand is correct, but I just, I don't like that name. Okay. Yeah. That's what I meant. Cause typically you're never going to, I mean, very rarely are you going to actually flop the flush, flop the straight. Exactly. Like I think, you know, draw. Pocket, pocket pairs are pretty, like pocket pairs, you yeah. actually can flop a set pretty Oof. easily. But I think when people try to treat a suited connector as if it's a, a small pair and say, I'm just going to limp and, you know, maybe I'll flop trips, maybe I'll flop a flush. Like that's just too much to ask for. Okay. Okay. So you sort of have this, this idea, okay, small pairs, suited connectors, that sort of thing. Those are generally a better prospects for limping behind. Big pairs, uh, big rank cards uh, are, are better prospects for limping behind when you have the lower SPR post-flop. What, for, for raising, like you, you, right. the second category. For raising, yeah, yeah, for raising, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, is there any sort of like rule, like, like guidelines? So, you know, I'm thinking about the math right now. I'm thinking about, okay, uh, what's my SPR going to be post-flop? So I'm kind of thinking through, okay, if I do this, you know, and I, if I raise here and I get called, what's my SPR going to be? Do you sort of have a, have you backed that into sort of how many big blinds you would have to start the hand? Uh, I mean, I think it's rare in a tournament that you're going to be so deep that if you raise with a hand like 6-5 suited, you're still going to have a high SPR after the flop. Um, particularly, like, you generally yeah. want pretty big raise. Like, if, if we're dealing with loose limpers, I guess I've been kind of passively assuming that too, is we're dealing with the kinds of limpers that you see in small stakes games where they're not necessarily limping. I mean, because you will see like some good players limp sometimes. I think the way you want to play against them is totally different. Like that's not even what I'm talking about right now. We're really talking about playing against the sort of like loose, splashy players who are speculating where they're just kind of like, oh, I just want to play too many hands pre-flop and try to see flops and see if I hit them. I think this is the kind of people that your, your correspondents are encountering mostly. Um, and so I think that, against those kinds of players, you're going to want to make a pretty big raise when you do raise. And so, I mean, I don't even know. I think, I think it's just you raise with hands that, that want to have a low stack to pot ratio after the flop and you live behind with ones that don't. I, I think it's rare that you'd be in a situation where you could, you could raise pre-flop, get called, and still have a high stack to pot ratio uh, after the flop. I think most of, the, most of these tournaments, you're not deep enough for that. You know, okay, if so you're playing a cash game where you're 300 big lines deep, it's a different story. Okay, so the general general approach, if, I, if I'm going to be raising with my big cards, the King Jack, whatever that might be over limpers, yeah. the idea here is I'm probably going to have a pretty low SPR after the flop. So if I hit a King or Jack, I'm probably just going to go with it. Just get exactly. it in. Or if you get Queen 10X, yeah. maybe Queen 9X, depending. I mean, but you're, you're setting, you're, like, you're, you're kind of trying to create, you want to choose hands where the, the number of possible flops on which your hand is strong enough to get it in is like as big as possible. I mean, for six, five suited, that, that world of flops is pretty small compared to what it is for King Jack offsuit. There's quite a few more flops where King Jack offsuit is going to be able to say, okay, good enough. Let's go with my hand when you're shallow. Okay. Guys, you have any questions before I keep going? 
<laughs> I just want to give those guys a chance. I, I, I tend to just talk too much. And so I don't give them a chance to get it. I have it. the same problem. Yeah. So, so when you start talking about, you know, bet sizes and that sort of thing, well, well, let me, let me back up a little bit, first of all. Um, so, you know, our target audience, a lot of the people that we play that, that are listening to the show, some of them are obviously playing the big stuff, but a lot of our guys are the guys and gals are, you know, it, it's home games, it's bar leagues, it's, it's casino tournaments up to maybe $500, you know, and then occasionally kind of drifting beyond that. So, you know, I think, I think as we've talked to some folks about this, you know, they just talk about, they never see limpers or they're talking about, well, people are just balancing their range and all these things. And, you know, that's not, that's not generally who we're dealing with at the tables. We're dealing with people that are just. Right. And and that's why I didn't even try to get into any of that. Right. Exactly. And I think there's a place for that. And that's, that's where, you know, as I listen to you talk about, well, okay, with the, you know, like the King Jacks of the world, uh, maybe that's, you know, you're raised there, maybe with the five, six suited, you, you limp behind. And I think initially I'm going, well, you know, if we don't balance our range, don't we become exploitable? But at the end of the day, we're not, should we really be worried about that in the games that we're generally playing? No. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the short answer is, is it, I mean, I don't even know that that's in balance. Like, I think the, the main exploit would be people who are limp re-raising effectively. Like, if you don't have that many hands that you're actually going to call a limp re-raise with, that's the main thing I would worry about is not just is this opponent capable of limp re-raising, because, like, I think a lot of people who do a lot of limping will also limp when they have aces. But if it's just a matter of, like, he's only going to limp re-raise the, like, 5% of the time that he has aces or kings, that doesn't really matter. You just suck it up the 5% of the time you get limp re-raised and you fold. The problem is if someone's really going to limp re-raise with a somewhat wider range that's going to include some more bluffs and some hands. Like, so if you fold King Jack when your opponent has aces, that's no big deal. If you get limp re-raised by, like, ace-five suited or pocket sixes and you fold King Jack, that becomes more of a problem. But unless you think any of your opponents are doing things like that, then I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. And so what, you know, what, what sort of race sizes are we talking about that you found to be the most effective? I mean, I've heard it kind of across the board, you know, it just, for, for me, I feel like, okay, you know, there's dead money out there. A lot of people are limping, but you know, the blinds are 50, a hundred, you get four limpers. So you've got whatever, five fifty in the middle. And I hear people say, well, just put out 2000. Well, I'm like, I don't know if I want to risk 2000 to pick up five fifty. you know what I'm saying? But yet, you know, obviously a raise to three or 400 is not going to do anything. Is there sort of a, you know, a sweet spot that you would look at if, you know, if my hand is, you know, something that I warrant, you know, a raise with, where do you kind of fall in that? So you got the, you know, say the blinds are 50, 100, you got four limpers, you're in the cutoff and you're going to raise. What sort of number do you tend to hone in on? Uh, the, the number that comes to mind immediately when you say that is probably about 700, which is, in, you know, I mean, the, the, the rule that I think a lot of people yeah. use, that I, I think, I mean, you can find exceptions to this, but I think something like, you know, starting with three times the big blind and then adding another one for each limper is a, a reasonable starting point. There's reasons that you might wiggle a little bit here and there, but I think you're in the right neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. You know, I've heard that rule for a long time. I didn't know if that was still sort of the rule or if things have changed, but it, it does feel like, you know, I'm always amazed at these, you know, these tournaments that I play a lot of, you know, it's the starting stack is 10,000 you know, and something like that happens and you go to 700 and you get like three callers. And I'm like, wow, these people are putting in, you know, 7% of their stack. They, they've limp calls. And I'm like, wow, that seems crazy to me. So you start, start thinking, well, maybe I should increase my raise size, but then that feels like I'm risking too much to pick up too little, you know? So you kind of get into this, this sort of conundrum, I feel like. Yeah. And I mean, I'd be more comfortable calling it a guideline than, than a rule. Right. The major exception that I, I would point out in the case where I think a lot of people don't raise large enough is if you're raising from the blinds where you're going to be out of position after the flop. So, you know, I think mostly this comes up, you're in the cutoff or you're on the butt, and that's where you have the most opportunities to, to do this. And you can do it with the widest range. But if you do happen to pick up, say, 
ace king or even pocket aces in the blinds, you're certainly going to want to raise. I think that's much better than you know, checking or, or completing from the small blind or something. And here, I think you want to go a good deal larger, like quite possibly double what you would have raised from the button. Um, it's really so like, especially if you're deep, um, being out of position is going to be a big liability after the flop. And what that means is that your opponents can justify calling larger raises with the same. Like if you think about what kind of raise would it take to give my opponent a decision um, if I were on the button, you know, what, what raise size would sort of make my opponent think whether or not he wanted to call with his hand. That raise size, whatever that size is, is going to have to be bigger when you're out of position because the same hand for your opponent, it's much easier for him to justify calling when he's going to be in position later. And in fact, the value of his call will be great if he's going to be in position later. Honestly, like if we're 100 big blinds deep and there's just a bunch of limpers and I have aces in the big blind, if everybody folds to my raise, that's not the end of the world as far as yeah. I'm concerned. I think like especially if you consider the kinds of hands that people are limping, like obviously pre-flop aces is a big favorite against the hand like 10-7 suited. After the flop, I don't know that on balance the money is going in better for aces. Like there's not a lot of boards where someone with 10-7 suited is going to make a big mistake against pocket aces. There's plenty of boards where pocket aces is going to make a big mistake against 10-7 suited. So, you know, pre-flop you have the nuts. After the flop, it's not going to be so clear. So the more you can get the stack to pot ratio down from out of position, the simpler your post-flop decisions are going to be. And yes, there exists the possibility. I know it, I mean, some people get really disappointed. They've been waiting for those aces and they raise and everybody folds. But if there's four or five limpers and everybody folds, like that's yeah. a size pot to pick up with no risk. Right. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Do, do you look at, you know, I mean, obviously we're talking about which hands to do this with. Uh, are you sort of opportunistic when it comes to limpers as well? Like maybe, you know, playing some garbagey hands just because, uh, you know, you, you see four or five, you'll know, punish the limpers, you know, approach where, you know, you get four or five limpers and boy, it seems like when people are raising these limpers, they're just taking down pots. Do you start to adjust to the table that way? I'm talking like early in a tournament where it, you know, you start saying, I'm going to, you know, go to 1400 here and pick up a bunch of limps, you know, punish them, pick up pots. Or are you still sort of waiting for hands that are going to play reasonably well after the flop in case you get called? I'm definitely looking for hands that are going to play reasonably well after the flop. Um, I, I mean, what you're describing, I, I might loosen my definition of what counts for reasonably well. <laughs> right. Uh, King seven suited, maybe it could start to find its way in there. I mean, I'm, I'm, but I'm just expanding out a little bit. I'm never doing it with deuce seven, right? So there's, there, there's a cutoff at some point. I'm not just, you know, raising with literally anything. But yeah, I would expand my range if I felt like I could get away with being more exploitive. If I thought, especially if I think people are folding too much to the raises, that would be the number one thing. Um, if it's a matter of people calling too much, I think mostly you exploit that by having good hands when you raise. If it's a problem of people folding too much to raises, that's when you would want to start opening up, but really only a little bit. Like when I say king seven suited, I, I think that's not that much worse of a hand than king jack offsuit. Right. How, how about you? Do you, do you have a, uh, a shift? Well, let me, let me ask you guys, any, any questions for Andrew before I kind of, I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit. I assume you guys will just jump in if you do. Well, I kind of had a, a question about, so what part of the tournament are we really concerned with here? In my experience, it seems like it's like the first four to six levels where you really see a lot of these limpers. And then once the blinds start to go up, they tend to disappear a little bit more. Um, is that what we're seeing or what you're seeing, Steve, in the types of tournaments that are these low buy-in tournaments? It, it is. That, that's exactly right. I'm kind of thinking about this as a phase one sort of issue, kind of pre-ante or you know, even right up to the antes where that is, that's exactly right because those people either, 
they realize limping is too expensive or <laughs> they, they've busted the tournament. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, that, that's exactly it. You do see some of the people continue on later, but I feel like the people that are doing it later when they got like 15, 20 big blinds, uh, they're usually limping for, for a real specific reason because they want to check raise, get it in. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think um, if you think about what they're looking for when they limp, and generally what they're saying is like, I would like to see a cheap flop with my hand. And so that's why raising them when you have, I mean, I guess it's just in general, like that's why raising them is effective is you're denying them what they want. Right. Now, if you also have a hand that's happy to see a cheap flop, then it might be okay for you, especially if you also have position, you're going to expect that you're going to make more of that opportunity than they are, which is why I'm okay limping behind the hand like 6-5 suited. But I would not limp behind king-jack offsuit. I would want to raise with that hand because that's a hand that does not really want to see a cheap flop. It's a hand where if your opponent's limping 10-7 suited and you're limping king-jack, he's got the advantage. He's the player who really wants to see a cheap flop with his hand. Your hand would prefer to... Um, see a flop with a lower stack-to-pie ratio. So you want to think about what do you want and how can you keep your opponent from getting what they want. And once you're shallow enough, there's no such thing as a cheap flop, right? Once you have 20 right. blinds, you know, I think most people, and even people who, I mean, they shouldn't really be limping 10-7 either with 100 big blinds either, but I can understand the logic. I think most of them at least understand that the logic that they're using to justify doing it at 100 big blinds does not apply at 20 big blinds. And, and John, did you have a kind of a follow-up question with that, or is that just more wondering what part of the tournament we were dealing with? Uh, no, I was just trying to, to frame it a little bit to understand, um, because you do get a few stragglers a little bit later on in the tournament that will try to uh, limp, and I tend to, quote-unquote, punish them a little more, and they're a little bit more receptive to that punishment <laughs> they're more likely to fold at that point because now all of a sudden you know this was a hand they were willing just barely to take a flyer with when it was min ray or a minimum bet but if you then make it you know three and a half x or 3.1 x or whatever then all of a sudden a lot of people tend to go away at that point in time when it's later early on you get it tend to get a cascade of calls with that and right. people even behind you to say, oh, yeah, there'll just be a whole bunch of people in here for this. That's a big pot. I want to be part of that. I was just going to piggyback off that. At least in my experience, I kind of look at it as almost like a funnel where preflop ranges are going to be wider. And then as each street goes further and further and further, they're going to be more narrow. And I think that also applies to different stages of the tournaments as well, like we're talking about where you know you're gonna have you know you might have six seven people to the flop you know level one level two whatever but i mean you would never see that you know towards the end of the stages of a tournament so like what john said you know it's just a good way to you know think about it and also just you know like you'd said to punishing the later stage limpers you know because some people who you know probably are limping way too liberally in the early stages you know made their way through the later stages so it's just something to think about yeah, maybe maybe with that, Andrew. I mean, are, are you thinking when when people are limping? Say you get you know three people limping, and maybe it's happening in level one, maybe it's happening in level five, still early, but you know different sort of dynamics. Are you thinking about what ranges are they limping with? That's part of your decision making process. Are you actually you know consciously thinking, oh, here's their limping range? Um, I'm thinking about what kind of hand they're limping with. Like I think in general, people are more likely to limp uh, smaller cards pocket pairs, suited connector, like the, the, again, the high SBR hands. Um, I think when people get hands like ace queen offsuit, 
most people prefer to raise those. You certainly see exceptions to that. And it's worth noting when people are limping those kinds of hands. But I think it, it's far more common that people limp uh, and are thinking of them as what you call speculative hands. Um, and I think in, in in your opponent's eyes, that's what they are. Like, I think they are speculating really, but I mean, they're, they're playing a slot machine. You know, they, they want to put a coin, a coin in and try to hit a jackpot by, by making something. And part of the advantage of raising more hands than just, you know, aces, kings, queens is that their reward is lower, right? The, so when you raise a more varied range that includes stuff like king, jack offsuit, there are occasions where, the flop comes seven three deuce and your opponent has a set of threes and he doesn't get your stack. If the only hands that you're raising are aces, kings, queens, then you know he'd always get your stack when he hits a set. So you actually make his set mining even more of a mistake if he folds to like a small continuation bet when he doesn't flop a set, but then when he does flop a set, all he wins is a small continuation bet. Uh, that's an interesting take. I like that. Kind of forcing them to make a bigger mistake. So when... I guess when when you sit down, Andrew, and, and you know you sit down, and let's say you're playing the main event, which I know you've had a lot of success in, or other tournaments or whatever, uh, you know, and the table has four or five people that are kind of limping a lot. Um, you know, one of the things I hear from recreational players is it's just so frustrating, and I'm I'm not so sure that it should be frustrating as much as it's a strategy adjustment and those things. But I do hear that quite a bit. Like they they limp everything, and then I raise, and they call everything, and people are getting kind of frustrated. So maybe you could speak a little bit to that, like. Yeah, uh, how do you respond when you see a table full of limpers? Or, you know, what advice would you have to the recreational player that for some reason, um, I don't know why, but they have a visceral <laughs> emotional response to people who are limping? Yeah, I mean, I think the frustration tends to be... So, I mean, I, I look at it as an opportunity, right? Anytime your opponent makes a mistake, it's an opportunity for you to profit. I think the frustration comes because people... Um, they prefer to profit in a certain way, right? What, mm. what they really want is to, um, or I think what the, there's a subset of people where like one of the things that's really important to them is just to sort of like not get drawn out on or not potentially lose big pots. And because these people are playing slot machines, right? Sometimes you hit a jackpot when you're playing a slot machine. Right. It doesn't mean playing the slot machine is plus EV, right? We all know that, you know, casinos make quite a lot of money off of their slot <laughs> machines, even though they pay out jackpots sometimes. And you really want to look at it like a casino operator. You're like, look, I'm, I'm trying to make, I'm trying to find the most money that my opponent is willing to put into the slot machine, but I do want him putting money into the slot machine, even though it means I'm going to have to pay, a, pay out a jackpot sometimes. Overall, I make money when my opponent's feeding coins into the slot machine. Uh, and I mean, I guess it's really just a question of why you're playing the poker tournament. You know, if, if you're re- your concern really is to try to make as much money as possible, then you want those people in there playing the slot machine and you want to look at it as an opportunity. You know, if it's that, um, I don't know, you just, you, you don't like losing big pots. Um, well, you know, your opponents uh, get to do what they want to do also, right? I mean, it's, right, uh, right. It's, you, can't, you can't have it all. So are there any other, like, like just kind of major strategic adjustments that you make? So you sit down at a table, there's a bunch of people limping. Um, what, I'm, what I'm hearing is you're sort of deciding which hands you're going to limp behind with, which hands uh, you're going to raise with, and, you know, considering the, the depth of stack, you know, those sorts of pieces, and then, you know, the, the bet sizing. Are there any other sort of strategic adjustments, whether it's, you know, in that very moment or whether it's post-flop or whether it's, um, you know, the, the people that limp, there's a high correlation with people that limp a lot and how they also play other streets. I mean, is there anything else that you're sort of, you know, that, that your radar sort of tunes into when you see that there's, you know, an opponent or two or three that 
are, are heavy limpers. I guess I tend to think that they're passive players in general. I mean, they're starting off by taking a loose and a passive action. I, I, I tend to assume that like most poker players are, are loose and passive, but it's just a question of how loose and how passive. But I think like almost every, at least, you know, almost everyone who hasn't really made a dedicated study of the game plays too loose and too passively, too loosely and too passively. Um, but I think the, the more that someone limps, the more extreme they are to show those tendencies after the flop as well. The main way that you exploit looseness is by value betting, and the way main way that you exploit passivity is by folding when your opponents bet. So I do tend to assume that like when these players are betting, it means they have a lot of confidence in their hand, um, a lot of confidence. I mean, what that means can vary from player to player and flop to flop. But I mean, these are the sort of people that you're going to consider folding top pair to when they show a lot of interest. Folding an over pair when they show a lot of interest in, in the pot. You really need to ask yourself if this player who's mostly pretty passive, who seems to mostly just be trying to like limp and call and wait until he has a big hand. Suddenly he's seems to want to put a lot of money in the pot and to be doing the one, you know, putting the money in, not just the one responding to you. You really need to ask yourself what's happened to change his demeanor. Why did he go from passive to aggressive? And, you know, maybe he hit the slot machine this time. No, it's really, that's really good. So how much do you think, like, like one of the things I think about with, with limpers or, or just people in general, I don't remember who the guest is that we had on, but they're talking about, you know, understanding the purpose of why people are playing the game. And sometimes, oh, I think it was, I think it was Chris Fox Wallace talking about, you know, it's kind of secretly interviewing people and kind of figuring out why are they playing. And, and I think some of these folks, I think there's different reasons why people limp. Some people just want to play a lot of pots. Uh, some people want to deliver a bad beat. You know, I think for, for me, you know what I mean? Like they're just, they're in there just because they just want to play every pot because they just, uh, they, they just want to deliver that, you know, win with 10-3 against pocket aces. Uh, mm-hmm. And some people are saying, well, it's, it's not Texas Hold'em or it's not Texas Hold'em, it's Texas Hold'em. So they're going to play every pot. Some people are just trying to have fun and part of their fun is playing a game. I mean, are, do you consider sort of the motivations at all behind whether it's people that are limping or, you know, other way, other things, are you sort of considering why is this person playing? Oh, they're, you know, they're a stay-at-home mom and this is kind of their one night out a week. They're just kind of having some fun or, I mean, how much does that kind of factor into all of this? Um, I think that's important. I mean, I, you can't always get insight into that. I mean, I right. guess I'm trying to figure it out, like, like uh, Chris was saying, if, if you can kind of talk to people a little bit or, or if they talk, I think the, the bigger the tournament is, the more likely it is that there is a particular reason why the person is playing. Like the main event is a great example of this, um, where you, know, you will get people for whom it, it really is like a bucket list experience. And so, I mean, I think you can kind of assume from that a lot of those people don't want to go out on day one. I mean, like no one wants to go out on day one, but like, you know, I'm willing to take the appropriate risks. And I think there are people who are not, you know, I think there are people who are just like, well, I'm just not going to go out on day one, you know? Um, and you can do that. Like in the main event, if you set the, for yourself the goal of, I don't want to go out on day one, that's pretty doable. Um, so like people really can accomplish that goal if they, if they want to. Um, the, I mean, I would say for people, like I think there's probably some people listening for whom, to whom that might apply. If not in the main event, then in some other big tournament, you know, they satellite into a $500 tournament, like big is different for different people. The one thing I would say is if you are, I mean, I don't think it's good to go into a tournament with that mentality in, in general, but I also think um, don't tell people that you're going with that mentality. And I really <laughs> do see that. Like literally in the main event, people be like, oh, it's such an honor. I've waited my whole life to play this. And it's like, I mean, it's nice that you have that, um, energy, like it's it's nice energy to have at the table, but at the same time, you're really putting a target on your forehead. Like, don't. I mean, if if you're gonna make mistakes, at least like don't tell your opponents what mistakes you're gonna make. 
<laughs> right. I tell you what, here's here's my biggest leak. Let me tell you what. Right, exactly. Leak. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to overplay any any ace. Um, you know, if, if Chris Wallace starts interrogating you, clam up. Right, exactly. Uh, a question from Jack. He was asking about uh, what your thought is sort of on the, uh, from a rec player's perspective. How much of this limping is just kind of peer pressure, like this monkey see, monkey do, or sort of like everybody's limping, I'll just limp along with them. Uh, do you think yeah. that's part of a motivating factor? I, I think a lot of it is. You know, I, I think it's – I mean, some of it is is just the general – like not wanting to look dumb, you know, and everyone else is, is limping. And if you raise a hand that other people wouldn't have raised and you end up losing that pot, some of those people, you know, either they're actually going to be thinking it, or at least you're going to worry that they're, they're thinking like, look at that dummy. That's right. why I don't raise with King Jack. Like, I mean, you hear the same, the ace king people are like, yeah. oh, you don't raise with ace king until you see if you have the ace of the king. Like there's lots of bad poker advice going on out there. And, you know, for people who don't have a lot of confidence in their own, um, skill. I think it's pretty tempting to just look around and see what everyone else at the table is doing. The problem is um, your goal is to beat those other players and that requires doing something that they're not doing. If everyone is doing the same thing, no one's making any money. So if your number one goal is to win, and it may not be, like if your number one goal is to be well-liked and well-thought of, right. one three game, like limping around probably is the best way to accomplish that goal. But if your goal is to make money, you're going to have to do things that your opponents are not doing. And that's going to mean sometimes losing a pot your opponents wouldn't have lost and possibly looking dumb to those opponents. Uh, and I think you just have to sort of have the internal confidence to to not worry about that, and to yeah. realize that like those people are pressuring you. I mean, that that peer pressure is a real thing. I know people do like get angry sometimes. People who raise too much pre flop, but you have to realize that that's not um, that's them trying to get you to play in a way that's good for them. You know, like that. It's not just that raising is somehow rude in a vacuum. They don't like raising because it interferes with what they're trying to do at the poker table, and. You're like your two play styles are just incompatible. Your goals are incompatible, and you know poker is a doggy dog world. Like in order to accomplish your goals, you're probably going to have to interfere with someone else's ability to accomplish theirs. Like there's lots of spaces that aren't like that. If if you don't like that energy, um, the poker table is probably just not the best place for you to do your socializing. Yeah, that that's well said. I mean, I don't know how many times people have said to me or other people at the table, "Can't we just see a flop?" <laughs> yeah, like sure, put seventeen hundred more chips in there. <laughs> exactly. That's that's up to you, my friend. Yeah. So I'm curious if, if you have any sort of a um, an open limping strategy at all. So what we've been talking about is limpers in front of you and kind of, you know, do we raise, do we limp behind, do we fold? You know, it, you know I'm, talking, I'm talking early in the tournament. So obviously I think later in the tournament you could justify maybe doing it against, you know, short stacks that you know are going to shove if you have a huge hand. I'm still not sure if I love that or not. But kind of early in the tournament, do you have an open limping strategy? In other words, you know, you're the first one to voluntarily put chips in the middle. Do you ever limp? Are you more of the camp of, if I'm going to be the first one to enter a pot, it's going to be for a raise. Uh, no, I'm, I'm willing to limp. The main times when I'm going to do it are when I think the table in general is pretty passive and I can, it, like, it enables me to play hands that I couldn't otherwise play. So, you know, I think pocket twos in general is not a profitable under the gun raise. Even when you're deep, it's not really a hand that I want to raise under the gun. But if I feel like my opponents are going to play very poorly or like six, five suit is another good example. Uh, if I think my opponents are going to play very poorly after the flop and also are going to be very passive pre-flop, like everyone else is doing a lot of limping. Um, I might limp in early position with those hands 
And I mean, yeah, it's exploitable in the sense that if people were to aggressively raise my limps, I'm probably going to have too many hands that are limping and folding or limping and calling and then folding to flop bets. So I'm really banking on people not doing that. I'm trying to exploit the fact that they're not doing that. It's not a default strategy for me, but it's something that I might adopt if I think the table is going to let me get away with it. Okay. Yeah. And I think a key to that, you know, as you mentioned, it's not, not just being able to see a cheap flop, but also, you know, the type of players that potentially will give you their stack if you flop set. Exactly. It, it, it's not enough to just flop the set. You have to have people who are actually going to pay you off when you, when you make it. Right. Okay. Okay. And, and again, you know, the tournaments that most of us are playing, again, we have some, you know, higher end stuff, but tournaments that most of us are playing, we shouldn't worry too much about balancing our range. Like, okay, well, if I'm going to be limping twos, threes, and fours, and I don't know, whatever, pick another hand, you know, six, five suited. I should also be mixing in limps with aces and kings. Should I be worried about balancing my range, you know, early in tournaments in low stake buy-ins? No. This yeah. is the right answer. <laughs> no, right. right. I don't, no. no. Nah. Rob, did you, did you have something, Rob? No, I agree. You don't, you don't change your strategy there. But one of the things with what Andrew's talking about, open limping, in that type of environment, when everybody is limping, it's very easy. If somebody comes out with a big raise, it's pretty easy to get away from that little pair or that little six-five suited because you know that that type of person to make that kind of bet is going to have a real hand. Yep. Yeah, that sounds right. I, th- I think the trap that I fall into, and, and why I don't, you know, I still don't really limp, but the two sound more appealing to me than like the eight-seven suited just because the here's the here's the trap I fall into. So even whether I'm open limping or whether somebody's limping and I'm I'm entering the pot with eight-seven, I tend to get too sticky, right? So like somebody limp, 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 I either raise or I limp behind with eight-seven, the flop comes, king eight three, you know, the guy bets. I'm like, oh, I got middle pair. I don't know, he might have he might have ace queen, you know. So I, I call that but pretty soon you're you know in for a quarter of your stack before you're folding the river. Um, you know, yeah, is that the- I mean, is that just part of the nature of poker or are you saying, or, or is part of this, you know, if you're going to play those sort of hands speculatively, multi-way pots, just assume somebody hits that bigger card and just fold. <laughs> I, I do think in general in multi-way pots, if someone is betting, like they probably have the hand there, like if you're know, in a six-way pot, you're probably not seeing a queen betting on a king eight three flop. And I mean, the, the better you play after the flop, the more value there is for you in seeing flops so like the more hands you're going to be able to justify limping behind and someone who's very confident in his post-flop skills is going to be able to profitably limp behind or i mean who actually has justified confidence in his post-flop skills um, it's it's usually the spot where like say i'm I'm in the cutoff or whatever and i i limp behind with eight seven suited and you know a really good player you know also limps on the button just because he wants the position and then there's a good Flop comes king eight seven. Everybody everybody checks to him and he bets. I'm like, well, this guy's going to bet king or no king. Yeah, um, and if you're right in that read, then it is a profitable call. Right. Um, so I mean, it's, it's like if you're getting too sticky, then that's a mistake, right? If, if you're getting appropriately sticky, then that's a, a profitable opportunity. Right. So I have to be the right I sort of sticky. I, I will say that like having a good player behind you on the button should make you a good deal less inclined True. to. Live. Um, so like, you know, we were talking about limping as an exploitive thing, the more likely it is that you're going to get exploited for doing it, the less you should be doing it. And, and that's such a good point. I mean, that's one of those points that I think most recreational players aren't paying attention to. Like if you have a good player to your direct left, it should change how you play. Um, and I think a lot of us uh, recreational players aren't giving that the weight that we should. Uh, Jake, did you have something? Yeah, I just had a question for Andrew. So the tournaments that like I know guys like me and Steve normally play are the same daily tournaments that they run every single week at 
the running aces card club that we both play at. So my question is, is your limping strategy changing at all when you're playing against basically the same opponents every single week? Um, only if I thought they were going to start doing something about it. So, I mean, basically, if, if the reason I'm limping is that I think people are paying off too much after the flop and not raising enough before the flop, as long as those conditions continue to hold, I'm going to keep limping. If they start, you know, if someone gets into his head, like, oh, that Andrew guy is, you know, he always limps those small pairs, I'm going to start raising him. Um, you know, then you've got to catch on that they're doing that and you can, you can try to re-exploit them. You start limping with big hands or start limp re-raising them as a bluff or you could just stop limping. Um, but yeah, so I, I, wouldn't, I don't think I would do it preemptively. Um, I, I, would, I would wait until I actually had reason to believe that my opponents were adapting to what I was doing. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go out of my way to balance just because I'm playing with these people regularly. They would have to show me that they're actually doing the thing that's exploiting my strategy before I would start worrying about that. Awesome. All right, good stuff. Well, well, guys, it's, it's we're almost at time, and right? the time just flies by talking to these guys. I hate that we have to end up. But any any uh, final questions for Andrew at all? Otherwise, Andrew, I want to give you a chance to kind of let us know what's going on. Like I know it's been a few a few months since we chatted. You had a nice main event run, but kind of tell me what what's going on in the world of Andrew Brokus. Uh, anything that we should be aware of that you're you're out there uh, selling or that you've written or anything. Is there does there happen to be anything that we should know about? <laughs> uh, since the last time we spoke, and I, I think we, we we mentioned when I was on here last that I was working on this book, uh, yeah. Optimal Poker, which has has come out now, um, and I've, I've actually started working now on the sequel. That's like the one of the things I've been doing since the, the main event finished. But the original book, Play Optimal Poker, is available on uh, Amazon either. Uh, paperback or ebook. And the thing I want to emphasize about this, it, it, is, it is a game theory book. I would say it, it's a book that's probably meant for most of your audience. It's really meant to be an introduction to game theory for people who are intimidated by game theory. Um, I think that's not the only audience for it, but it's really meant to take someone from a, a zero knowledge of game theory to a working knowledge of game theory, not necessarily to the point where you're using solvers and you know, balancing in high stakes situations, but just understanding like, what are people talking about when they use these concepts like balance and equilibrium? Um, I also think that understanding game theory is useful even when you're trying to play exploitively. So, you know, I've mentioned a few times over the course of our conversation, you know, I have in mind, what are the things that my opponents could do to exploit me? And what are the things that my opponents are not doing? And how do I exploit the things that they are not doing? Or how do I exploit the things that they are doing? And I think that in order to really play exploitatively well, you have to understand what an unexploitable strategy would look like first. So that then you can say, okay, now I understand that um, the reason it's important to have both plus and value bets is so that your opponents can't just trivially fold when you bet. Now, if I believe that my opponents are never folding when I bet anyway then there's no reason to include the bluffing portion of that range. The way you exploit a player who never folds is by never bluffing and by doing lots of value betting. That's a simple example that most people could probably figure out without having any understanding of game theory. But there's more complicated cases that kind of arise along those lines. So I think that there's probably a lot of people out there who have the impression of, oh, game theory is just something for those high-stakes guys, and I don't, I'm just a dummy who plays one, too. I don't know anything about any of that. Um, and I would say... Uh, like the, the, this book is for you. Like the, your the 
the target audience of this book is it's meant to explain game theory to, I mean, you have to be motivated. It's not the, um, it's not light reading, I would say, <laughs> but uh, it is, it is meant to be accessible to someone who's playing small stakes games and has no starting knowledge of game theory. Well, that sounds great. I know we're, we're looking at, um, at starting some book studies and book clubs, that sort of thing with part of the rec poker nation you know, community. And so that might be a good, uh, a good one for us to consider as well. So we'll add that to the list of things to potentially, uh, add to our book list. Well, I'd be flattered. And if you want to, uh, have me back sometime to uh, participate in that book club, I'd be happy to do it. Oh, that'd be great. I think the, I think what we're hoping that we do is sort of have the book study a book club, you know, ongoing basis. And then at the end, you know, have the author come in and kind of answer any of those uh, questions that are kind of lingering. So that would be fantastic. Yeah, we did that for a little while on uh, the Thinking Poker podcast. We did it, I think we did it with Ed Miller. We did it with Jared Tendler, maybe Tommy Angelo. Um, I don't remember why we stopped. It was a good idea. But yeah, I, would, I would definitely encourage you to, uh, to, to, to go with that. I mean, not just for my sake, but I think, you know, for books in general, I think it's a nice, uh, a nice format. And it was popular. Yeah, and I think, you know, learning together, that, that's kind of what we're doing. We're trying to learn together in community because I think some people are really good at learning on their own. I think there's a, there's a pool of us out there that are like, man, we learn so much better when we can actually dialogue about it. So that, that's the idea behind the book club. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think for, for Play Optimal Poker, I imagine that'll be helpful because I think there probably will be spots that come up where it'll be useful you to, to, you know, to be able to say, hey, what did you guys get out of uh, reading this, this section? I, I have gotten some feedback that it's, uh, it, it's a book that needs to be read carefully as, as much as I tried to, um, you know, to lay things out. These are just, they're concepts that I think are, are not how most people are currently approaching poker. Like it really is, uh, it, it should be a mindset shift for you in, in poker. And I think that's something that takes a little time to, to process. It's just the nature of the beast. For sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Any, anything else that uh, we should be aware of or what's the best way for people to connect with you? I know you've got a few things going on, but as the website, yeah, Twitter, what's the other best way? It's pretty much all localized at uh, thinkingpoker.net and on Twitter at thinkingpoker. Um, so thinkingpoker.net, there's information about coaching. You can find the latest podcast episode and the podcast archives. We've even got a place that suggests some of the most popular episodes of all time. So if you're looking to just get started in the show, you could certainly listen to the most recent episode, but obviously that's hit or miss. Um, you could also pull out our favorites from the 300 plus episodes that we've recorded and those should all be hits. If you listen to one of those and you don't like it, we're probably just not for you. Um, <laughs> right. so I feel very good about our best six episodes. So um, yeah, so that you find those on there, coaching stuff. Um, you find links to, to purchase the book, although Amazon is probably the best place to do that. And then uh, you know, Twitter, I, I try to announce when I have uh, new projects and stuff on Twitter. I also just try to be an entertaining Twitter follow in, in general. I try to share some strategy stuff on there. Sometimes if I'm playing in games, I'll share hands that I play it in higher stakes, which people find interesting. I have a newsletter where I do the same kind of thing. And you can find all of that at thinkingpoker.net. All right, guys. Well, he, he's highly recommended. I know a lot of people have said, you know, the first time before we had you on, you know, if you could ever get Andrew Brokus, that'd be awesome. So, you know, we had you on, people loved you. Uh, they're back. I'd say, you know, you know, guys, plug into Andrew's stuff. I mean, if you like what you hear, uh, get out there, read the book and, and listen to the stuff and then come back and share it with the Rec Poker Nation. Tell us what you're learning uh, so that we can all learn from, from each other. But uh, I think, you know, one of the things that we've said here, Andrew, is that, you know, we're really trying to form a community. We're not trying to compete on content. There's too many really, really smart people like you out there doing Nash equilibriums and all sorts of uh, So, you know, you, you teach us the game. Uh, we'll take it, you know, we'll take it in bite-sized chunks and we'll kind of digest it together. Uh, and that way I think we can have a really good partnership. Yeah, it's a nice idea. Rob, did you have something you wanted to add there? 
Just wanted to thank Andrew for coming on. I just really enjoy listening to him. He's very, very knowledgeable and very, very humble at the same time. Great combination. That's very kind of you, Rob. Thank you. All right. Well, Andrew, we'll let you go. Uh, we got a little business that we're going to do some announcements that you don't really need to stick around for unless you really, really want to, uh, but we can let you sign off there. All right. It was nice talking to you guys. Have a good night. All right. Take care. All right, guys. Well, there goes Andrew Brokers. That was fantastic. Just a few announcements in closing. And guys, make sure you chime in here. Uh, this is more uh, kind of detailed announcements. I didn't want to clutter the, the front end up. But just so everybody knows what's going on, uh, just some, some really cool stuff. Uh, I mentioned, so John Somsky's on the line, and he actually has set up a, a Poker Stars home game. Uh, so September 4th is going to be our first one at 8 o'clock p.m. Central. It's online, PokerStars. It's free. It's open to anybody that wants to join. You just have to register on there. And we're going to be running that the first Wednesday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Uh, John, is there anything that people should know about that deal? Well, we'll be sending out some instructions on how you actually join the home game uh, shortly. But the most important thing to remember is the way they the free roll games are structured is the cheapest price I can make the tournaments is 20,000 chips. And PokerStars allows you to obtain 15,000 chips every four hours. In other words, if you show up five minutes before the tournament that night, expecting to play without any play chips in your account, it's not going to be able to happen real easily. So log on a couple of times. If you do it twice, that'll give you 30,000 chips. only costs 20,000 to play. We're going to do this once a month. So it should be a good time. We'll be able to actually play uh, against the rest of the Rec Poker Nation. Uh, I plan on attending uh, every game, if at all possible, and a few of the other panelists should be there as well. It should be a great time. Yeah, I think it's going to be super fun, and then we'll figure out. We're going to try to get some prizes donated from places. Otherwise, we'll also do Rec Poker merchandise. Maybe we put a little bounty on those of us who are part of the, the core group or something. We'll figure out something fun, but... Uh, yeah, it's going to be a good time. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, you know, part of building the community, um, you know, here we are, let, let's play together. Let's, let's banter a little bit and then let's talk about it. Exactly. Good. So, well, thanks for doing that, John. I appreciate you setting that up. And we'll like, like John said, we'll send out more details or just make sure you're, make sure you're getting the newsletter email, make sure you're on Facebook and or Twitter um, or discord, you know, make sure you're plugged in somewhere uh, that we can make an announcement that you'll make sure that you get that, uh, that information. Uh, another thing that we're doing is actually something Jake set up, who's on the panel here tonight, uh, the, the NFL Survivor Pool. Jake, do you want to share a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar, the Survivor Pools are basically you pick one team a week that you think is going to win straight up, but the caveat is once you use that team, you can't use them again. And at least in my experience, there have been a lot of times where these leagues don't really last that long because they're usually <laughs> you know, a big underdog that wins a game that you know the public's on or whatever, but... Yeah, so right now we've got seven people. Um, you can register until September 5th, which is when the first game of the season is, the Thursday night game. Um, we're giving away three uh, pieces of merchandise for the top three finishers. So, yeah, free to play. You know, we're just like, you know, like you've always said, we're just trying to connect, you know, and get the community involved. Um, and I, that will be on Yahoo. The league ID is 10131. The password is rec poker, all one word. I'm sorry, rec poker, one, two, three, four, all one word and all lowercase. And I know, Steve, that you've tweeted it out a couple times. I've tweeted it out a couple times as well. Um, my Twitter is at Jake Mason zero zero. So, yeah, just 
sign up for free and yeah, let's just have some fun with it. You know, and we're also set up in the discord channel as well, just to do a little smack talking and <laughs> have some fun with it. So. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's super fun. And I, I think we're going to get a good number of people signed up. Everybody kind of does that last minute, but, but that'll be fun. I, another bragging thing. And, and Jake mentioned the D- discord channel. So we have this, I guess it's called a discord server. And then we have the channels inside of there. And like Jake mentioned, one of the channels uh, is for this, for the survivor pool. So that'll be a chance to kind of really rip on people who, you know, who pick the bears week one or <laughs> sorry, sorry, <laughs> Chicago. I know you're one of our better listeners, bigger listening audiences, uh, but we're Viking fans here. So, um, but yeah, that'll, that'll be a good time. So thanks Jake for setting that up. And he mentioned discord. That's another thing we're starting. We've got, I don't know, 40 or 50 people out there now that are kind of uh, on a regular basis, kind of, you know, exchanging hand histories. Uh, we've got a lot of virtual railing going on. So if you don't know what discord is, I didn't until, a few weeks ago until these young people told me about it, but it's a really fun way to, to really do kind of live group chats. Uh, and you, it, it's really just a really good time. So, so check out discord too, as a way to get connected. Um, let's see, I mentioned that we're now going to be recording on Monday nights and releasing Monday nights for the podcast. Um, that's the regular schedule. Now, uh, sometimes we have a guest that aren't that flexible, uh, that we have to work around, but typically that's going to be the the routine. And from now until the end of September, if you want to just get in on these conversations, uh, I'm sending out the invite, uh, how to join the webinar. So you don't have to be one of our panelists to actually be, uh, be in attendance. You can listen, you can type questions. And so we'll do that till the end of September. After that point, uh, that'll be available for members uh, at, uh, starting October 1st. But you can do that now. And we've got some great people coming up here that you could actually get plugged in with uh, see if, I, if I've got that down here somewhere. So uh, Andrew Brokers was tonight. We've got Matt Hamilton, Jonathan Little, Ryan LaPlante, Daniel Negranu. All of these people uh, are going to be people that we interview from now till the end of September that you could actually be in attendance on and ask questions of. And I know Alec Torelli today said he'll come on, but his will probably be uh, into October. So check that out. Uh, again, a lot of other stuff going on. Email, Twitter, Facebook, Discord. That's how you stay connected. Uh, last week, we talked a lot about some of the content that's coming up, but we're really excited. Uh, we have an agreement with the MSPT where we can actually use their final table videos and we can do some some hand breakdowns, uh, either the entire final table or we'll pick some hands. We've got uh, Chris Jones and Taylor Moss who are looking at specific hands that we're going to break down as a crew. We're going to do some book studies, all kinds of really cool stuff uh, that we're just excited to work on and, and give you guys and, and actually invite you all to be part of as well. Uh, we want it to be as interactive as possible. Uh, so, so participate in those things uh, as well. Um, other than that, guys, I just want to thank Running Aces again, who's our official sponsor. But uh, panelists, uh, did I miss anything? Anything you want to add, either from Andrew, from what we have going on, which feels like a fire hose flurry of activity, but we're going we're gonna to find our rhythm and a way to get all the content to people. Anything uh, that you all want to add? All right. Well, with that, we will log off there. Uh, thanks, everybody. And we'll chat next week.